Uh, in light of our text today, which is 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12 through verse 19, if you want to go ahead and uh, turn there in your Bibles. If not, it will be on the screen also, so no worries if you don't have that. But uh, as you'll see from our, from our text today, the theme is suffering. It is a theme that no one enjoys, and yet is a theme that is uh, by no means ignored in Scripture. Uh, Luke, or Luke. I wrote Luke in my notes, which is terrible. We've been in Luke so long that I, it's like when you've been writing 2021 forever, and then the date switches to 2022, and you still write the wrong date. Well, uh, I wrote Luke in my, in my notes, so excuse me if I say Luke multiple times, but um, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we're going to go ahead and read our text for today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today as we open up your word, ask that you would Guide us as we study your word. I ask that you would um, guide me as I seek to teach this scripture and teach it effectively and truly and rightly. And Lord, if I am wrong in any way, I ask first of all that you would forgive me and that you would uh, help us to see clearly in light of an error on the speaker's part. Lord, if, um, Lord I pray that you would encourage anyone here in this place who uh, is experiencing this kind of suffering as a Christian, Lord, that this message today would be an encouragement to them uh, and, Lord, that it would be an encouragement um, and, and eye-opening to those who, Lord, um, perhaps don't know what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was preparing for our text today, and I'm thinking about what suffering as a Christian is like, there are, uh, there are really multiple, I think, illustrations that we could use to illustrate the, the point of suffering, uh, specifically suffering as a Christian, suffering with an end in mind, with uh, a, a Lord and a Savior that has called us to this, to this life, this life that involves suffering. But there's none, I think, that, that is as clear uh, as that of a runner. I think the example of running, training in this way, is often used in Scripture because it is so understandable. I think it is so relatable. But specifically, I thought as I was reading this text about uh, running a long race, something like a half marathon or a marathon, or if you are really wild, an ultra marathon or something like that. Running these long distances where you're just putting in mile after mile uh, and run step after step, and it is frankly exhausting. Um, I know that I was talking with Mike and Cody uh, last Sunday and uh, about running. They've started running, and uh, I presented the idea of maybe running a half marathon. Uh, coming up later this year together. Um, 
Uh, but one thing about running, and I think specifically these long races, when you're already exhausted, the last thing you want to see around mile 7, 8, 9, 10 is a great big uphill portion of the track. That's the worst. It is the absolute worst. And yet, what we know is that if that's where the track takes you, if that where the court is where the course runs, then that's where you have to run. If you're going to continue on the course, if you're going to finish the race, then you have to run whatever uphill, whatever rough portion comes your way, whether it be uphill, whether it be a gravel portion, whether it be a muddy portion, whatever the case is, if the course goes that way, that is the way that you must run if you're going to finish the race. You see, no one's really forcing you as a runner to run up that hill. You're choosing to do so because you have chosen, you have opted to run this race. You could, in fact, stop running before you get to the hill and just call it done. You could maybe even find an easier way, a way that would be all straight and, and flat and no hill, uh, but you would not win the race that way. You would be disqualified because you, you left the course. You didn't stay on the course. And many times in those cases, it would be easy to do that. And yet the hard thing to do, but what we are called to do in that situation, is we're called to face the hard battle. We're called to face the struggle. We're called to face the suffering. And, but we are called to face the suffering not uh, without hope, not without joy, not without uh, something to look to. And so the title of my message today is Looking Past the Trials, because really that's what Peter, I think, is calling us to do as we face trials. He's calling us to look past the trials to something greater. Point number one, if you would like to take notes, and if not, this is point number one anyway, uh, is Christian, you will suffer. In verses 12 through 13, we read this guarantee. Verse 12, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, although something as though something strange is happening to you. Here in verse 12, we see Peter saying not to be surprised as though something strange were happening to you whenever you face these trials. As we see from our text further down from the context here, that what Peter specifically has in mind is trials such as persecution. When he says later on suffering as a Christian, that's what he is intending because there's all kinds of suffering that we face uh, that has nothing to do with us being a Christian. We suffer when we uh, don't have enough money to make ends meet. We suffer when we face an illness or a disease that uh, has sprung up in our lives or in our family. We suffer when, um, when we lose our jobs. Whatever the case may be, suffering to a certain extent is inevitable in everyone's life, whether Christian or not. And not that Peter doesn't care about those kinds of suffering, kinds of suffering such as hardship, pain, affliction, suffering as a human being. Uh, that's addressed plenty throughout the New Testament. But specifically, what Peter has in mind here is suffering as a Christian, suffering persecution in this world. And he tells us that it's something that is to be expected. He sets us straight that suffering will come. He is telling the believers, he's telling the church that you are going to suffer, therefore don't be surprised. It is not an outrageous thing when you face persecution, when people hate you when people revile you. This is something that is not strange in the life of a believer. It is something that is a guarantee, for indeed Christ says, all who desire to live godly lives will suffer. But he goes on to say in verse 13, rejoice. 
insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice. Why on earth would it be possible? Why would we possibly rejoice in our suffering? That is kind of a question to be considered here at this point, a question that, frankly, the world has no answer to, but one that we have, I think, multiple answers to given to us in Scripture. And there are various answers that we could give, but today I want to point out at least three reasons why we can and should rejoice in our suffering. First of all, we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that our suffering is temporary. We know as those who are united to Christ that our suffering is only for a temporary moment, that we will not suffer for all eternity, but merely for this lifetime. And when you weigh this lifetime against eternity, you realize that it's actually not that long at all. It certainly seems like it as we are in it. Many times when we're in the suffering, we have a hard time seeing that there is an end to it. We have a hard time putting our hope and and setting our sight on anything other than the darkness, other than the hard race that we have before us, the hills, the trials. And yet we know that suffering for us is temporary. This is why, and perhaps the most referenced text that I've referenced over the past few weeks, but uh, this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if we have hope in this life only, uh, we are above all most to be pitied. But in fact, Paul is working out of the understanding that we have hope in more than just this life, that this life and our death at the end of this life is not the end. But what our death at the end of this life does mark is it does mark an end to our suffering. For from then on, we have nothing but joy and everlasting life with Christ. So there's reason one to rejoice in suffering. We know that it's temporary. Number two, we know that we are following in the steps of our Savior when we suffer for his name. For Christ says, a servant is not greater than his master. When we consider how Christ was treated by the world when he came, it would be foolish of us, as he tells us, to think that anything less is coming for us, less than hatred, persecution. For indeed, the title of Christian means what? Means little Christ, right? Follower of Christ. Just like a Herodian is a uh, follower of Herod, a Christian is a follower of Christ, an imitator of Christ, one who takes after the leading of Christ. And if we indeed were to, are to call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, little Christs, in that sense, then we have nothing more to expect but that we will suffer as Christ did. But we ought to wear that as a badge of honor. We can look to Christ and say, if he suffered, then what more can I expect? And indeed find joy and rejoice in the fact that we were counted worthy to suffer persecution for the name, just as the apostles did in Acts chapter 5. After being beaten and sent out and charged not to preach the gospel anymore, Acts, the book of Acts, Luke records that they left that place rejoicing. After being beaten, they left rejoicing because they considered it an honor to suffer for the sake of Christ, to follow in his footsteps and suffer in that way. So in that way, we can rejoice that we are imitating Christ. And third, we can rejoice because we know that the Lord is using every suffering that we face to sanctify us and to grow us and to mold us more into his image. Indeed, Romans chapter 5 is perhaps the most prominent text teaching us this. In Romans chapter 5, Paul encourages the church that suffering is worthwhile. For he says in verses 3 and 4, 
Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. All of this comes from suffering. We see that suffering, as hard as it is, as painful as it is to endure, is for our good, for our sanctification, for our growth in Christ. In the same way, someone working out, someone training with weights, pumping iron, is going to feel pain. I mean, the whole point of lifting weights in order to gain strength is that you're actually tearing your muscles. That's what's happening when you work out, you tear your muscles, and then as they heal and grow back, they grow back stronger. There is a certain amount of pain and suffering that comes from working out. And yet we do it, and we do it knowing that through that pain, there is gain, to follow the expression. No pain, no gain, right? That is true of our suffering in Christ, that indeed, following the pain, there is great gain, for indeed there is godliness that comes from our suffering. So these are just three. These are just three of many reasons that we have to rejoice in our suffering, and all three of these are only made possible by our union with Christ. Only in Christ are these made possible. For indeed, suffering is not temporary if we do not know Christ. For the person that's separated from Christ, as we'll see later on in our text, has no hope of an end to their suffering, but an eternity of suffering. We know that suffering is only able to be rejoiced in in Christ because uh, there is no imitating Christ if you are not following him. If you are not trusting in him as your savior, then imitation of him is futile and does nothing for you. For indeed, you would be imitating just another guy who died on the cross, who died uh, for no good reason if he was not the Messiah. The Lord's suffering would do no purpose to sanctify us or grow us either if the Holy Spirit is not indwelling in us. If Christ had not sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. All of these things are made possible only by Christ and our union with him. And we know that union with him means we have reason to rejoice in our suffering. Ultimately, verse 14 gives us the answer. It gives us the answer to the question, why rejoice in our suffering? Verse 14, the answer says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The question is, if we suffer for Christ, then we are blessed. We are blessed because it is an indication that the Holy Spirit rests upon us, that the glory of God is ours. We are blessed if we suffer. According to these verses, suffering is a blessing. That should lead us to ask the question then, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting question, when we consider that suffering is a blessing, specifically Suffering by persecution, by, by the world despising us, rejecting us, hating us, reviling us because of our faith. If that is a blessing, then how many times have we avoided a blessing by avoiding that kind of suffering? By seeking to hide the fact that we are Christ, by seeking to mask or camouflage our Christianity. I thought about Aaron's illustration this morning of the evangelical, the atheist, and the Muslim on a plane. And I thought to myself, and I would wager many of us 
did as well. If I were in that situation, I would have been very tempted to just keep quiet, to just not say anything. Even Aaron admitted he felt as a 23-year-old ill-prepared for that kind of situation. Well, I'm a 29-year-old pastor, and I feel ill-equipped for that kind of situation. Because nobody wants to sit next to someone, and first thing you do is upset them to where they don't want to sit next to you anymore, and then you've got eight hours left on your flight, right? No one wants that. Certainly, even beyond that, no one wants to have to endure anger or ridicule or slander from those who reject the faith. And yet, that's what we're called to do. And the text, I think, here would have us indicate that to do that, as we would be tempted to do, to avoid the suffering, would be to reject a blessing. Because the Bible text tells us that it's a blessing to suffer in this way for the sake of Christ. I know that I'm guilty of that. I know that most of us in here are guilty of that. And for that, we ask for forgiveness, but we also ask the Lord, give us strength. Lord, help us to boldly endure the suffering and accept the blessing. Help us not to reject the blessing because it is too difficult to endure. Point number two, Christians suffer for Christ. Peter gives an important caveat here as he writes in verses 15 and 16, where he says this, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Paul's, excuse me, Peter's caveat here as he is writing is that there is a sense in which someone could think that they are suffering, but indeed they're not suffering as a Christian, but they're suffering because of their own evil deeds. It's pretty easy for us, I think, to, to conceive of all kinds of, of things, all kinds of suffering that we are enduring for various reasons and convince ourselves that we're enduring them for Christ's name when in actuality we, in, in some cases, are enduring them because of our own wickedness, because of our own sin, because of our own actions. And Peter's warning here is that we not do that. He says, do not, if you suffer, if you are insulted, excuse me, he says, let, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And we hear these first three things not to suffer as. He says, do not suffer as a thief or as a murderer or as an evildoer. Some translations might say criminal here. And we might think, well, that's pretty easy. I, I've never murdered anyone and frankly never been tempted to murder anyone. I've uh, never stolen anything. I don't find that to be too much of a temptation. And I'm not a criminal other than maybe speeding. I think I'm okay, right? You know, we might be feeling pretty good about ourselves until we come to that last one. Uh, if you suffer as a meddler, as he says at the end of verse 15, this might not be a title that we're all that familiar with, but I think we ought to consider what Peter means here when he says meddler. What the idea of a meddler is one who is uh, a busybody, someone who is very concerned about other people's business, even more so perhaps than their own, someone who's quick to criticize, who's quick to point out other people's faults and errors, quick to tell them how to do this or how to do that, quick to point out their mistakes. A meddler is one who's lost focus on the gospel and has exchanged it and focused too much on other things, things other than the gospel, things other than 
what Christ has done to save us from our sin. I think there are various examples we could give of this, but uh, I think one that perhaps isn't so prominent today, but was certainly prominent in the church not all that long ago, was uh, the overzealous concern with things like long hair on men. Yeah, Robert, thank goodness that is not the case so much anymore, but, uh, except for me, I give Robert a very hard time uh, about his long hair, but there are many who would say, especially back in the day, uh, oh my goodness, look at that person, look at their long hair, that is so disgusting. I can't believe they would have long hair. I would never grow my hair out like that or let my children grow my hair out like that. We see the, the error in, the, in their ways, right? We see the pride at work there. That is a meddler. Someone who would quickly tell another person, hey, you shouldn't grow your hair out that long. You shouldn't let your kids do this or that. You shouldn't drink this or that. You shouldn't have this or that done to your body. And all of these things serve as distractions from the gospel, Right? For if you tell someone not to grow their hair long or, or to raise their kids a certain way or not do this or that uh, as far as tattoos or piercings or whatever, what has that done for their soul? What if they listen to everything that you've told them and they, they cut their hair short if they're a dude, uh, they grow it long if they're a woman, they, they don't have any tattoos, they don't have any piercings, and they raise their kids according to your prescribed standard? What have you done for their soul in that case? And how have you glorified Christ and the gospel in that case? The answer is you haven't. All you've done is meddled. And I think we've all been guilty of that. I think we've all been guilty of giving undue focus to things that aren't the gospel. Focused on those instead of the gospel. If we suffer in that way, we are not suffering for the sake of Christ. We are not suffering as a Christian as much as we might want to convince ourselves that we are. It ought not be that we suffer because of what we have done wrong. For indeed, there is no glory in that, but only shame. We have only to be ashamed if we suffer for any of these things. If we suffer because we've been a jerk to somebody, if we suffer because they didn't like that we told them uh, they shouldn't have long hair or X, Y, or Z, there is only shame to be had for us in that, for that does nothing for us or for the sake of Christ. The correct understanding of our suffering, of our uh, enduring persecution, is that we suffer for righteousness' sake. What this means is that we suffer in a way that we are not ashamed, as the text says in verse, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We ought to feel no shame when we suffer because we have proclaimed the gospel to those around us. We ought to feel no shame because we have refused to take part in the things that sinful people that the world takes part in. The world would have us feel shame for those things, but we ought not feel shame for that. We ought to hold our head high knowing that we have glorified God, shown the light of the gospel in a dark world. The gospel is offensive on our own. We do not need to help it along by being offensive by our own wickedness or by our own sin. The difference between these two kinds of suffering that are contrasted here in verse 16 and 17 is that one is a suffering that requires you to apologize. If you've done, done something wrong, if you have sinned against somebody, if you have been overly concerned about things that aren't the gospel, then you owe that person an apology. But suffering as a Christian means you do not owe an apology. There are people that will be offended and that will revile you and that will hate you 
for the gospel because indeed the gospel is offensive. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16 tells us that the gospel is the aroma of life to those who are in Christ and it is the aroma of death to those who are perishing. People are gonna hate the gospel and they're gonna hate the person who tells the gospel to them. As Christians, we ought to let that be the thing that causes people to revile us and causes our suffering, not our own stupidity, not our own sinfulness. Point number three, unbeliever, judgment is coming. It might be uh, somewhat unfair to just say unbeliever here in this section, for indeed, uh, in verse 17, we see that judgment begins at the household of God, as, as Peter writes. But the suffering that begins at the household of God is different than that of the world. The suffering that we face as Christians, the judgment that is ours, is different from the world's. Peter writes, it is for judgment to be time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And then he says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter's point here, his argument is moving from the lesser to the greater. He's saying that, yes, judgment will begin at the household of Christ. The fiery trials that are to come for the household of God are coming here first. But what is it that they serve to do? He says in, in the beginning that fiery trial will come, but the fiery trial that comes upon believers, upon the household of God, serves to purify, serves to sanctify God's people. It is a refining fire. But he goes on to say that the fire that unbelievers face will be one of condemnation and of wrath. He's moving from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if believers are going to face judgment of God, this fire that is to come, this judgment that is to come, and if they will only stand, if they will only be saved through that fire, then what about those who were perishing? What about those who are not followers of Christ? How much worse is the fire going to be for them? And the answer is it is going to be absolutely terrible. Through fire, we are being saved, but those without the imputed righteousness of Christ will be consumed by fire. You see, the, the fire that is to come, the fire that's being illustrated here is like that of a, uh, of a metal refinery, a fire that is intended to heat up and to purify the church. Those of us who are in Christ has have at our core the imputed righteousness of Christ, the precious metal of his righteousness that will bring us through the fiery trials and will bring us through purified and refined. But there is nothing to bring through for the unrighteous. There is nothing that will allow them to survive the trial, to survive God's judgment, but they will be utterly consumed. They will be cast out. All that there is is impurity, and the impurity will be destroyed in the refining fire. He brings this point home even more as he recites the Old Testament and says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This rhetorical question is intended for us to see that for them is only wrath and judgment and suffering. Our suffering is for a moment, but the suffering of the unrighteous is for an eternity. Point number four, finally, the last word in this chapter that Peter gives is Christian, God is sovereign. Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. The last word that Peter gives here in this uh, portion on suffering, on suffering persecution, is he points us to the sovereignty of God. There is nothing in this world more encouraging, more steadfast, more uh, able to be grasped a hold of as a firm foundation, as an immovable hold than God's sovereignty. The God that is sovereign over all things is who Peter appeals to, and he says, let those who suffer according to what? According to God's will. That is, our suffering is not outside of God's will. It is God who has ordained this suffering. I like the way Dr. Schreiner puts it. He says that all suffering passes through his hands. That there is not an ounce of suffering, whether physical, pain, sickness, whatever, or that of persecution from the world around us. There is not an ounce of suffering or persecution that comes upon us that is not according to the will of God, that he has not ordained for our good. And we can take great hope in that. Ultimately, church, the message that Peter gives to sufferers is take hope. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. And while you're doing that, continue in good works. He says, trust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All of this should encourage us not to give up, not to stop along the race, not to look at the hills and say, nope, can't do it, but rather to look past the suffering to the finish line. If you're running a race and you are only focused on the hills, then you are going to get extremely discouraged. The idea behind running a race is to know that there is a finish line ahead and to keep that in mind. That there is a finish line. There is a medal waiting for you. There is a crown of glory waiting for those who suffer for the sake of Christ. Take hope in that. Look past the suffering that we face here on this earth, the persecution that comes our way, because indeed, Christian, it will come. Suffering will come. But as you suffer, suffer for God and suffer knowing that God is sovereign. Place your hope in that. I want to conclude with just a couple verses to encourage us. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says this. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is what we sang about in our song today. That the suffering that we face, the hardships that we face, this Light, momentary affliction, as Paul calls it. We don't often feel like it's a light, momentary affliction, do we? We maybe can get our heads around momentary, but light, come on, Paul, you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I'm suffering right now or what I've suffered. Certainly, I would say Paul probably does, for he's probably suffered more than any of us, but even more than that, Christ does, for he is the great high priest who in every way has suffered and can relate with us. And then finally, Paul also says in Romans chapter 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is so cool. He's saying that the suffering that we face at this present time compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us is like a speck. It's not even worth comparing. It is so tiny. It is so insignificant compared to the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. 
take hope in that. And the bigger your suffering is right now, the greater Romans 8.18 ought to make your hope. That, that's how great our coming glory is. That whatever it is you're facing, it is a tiny, tiny speck on the backdrop of eternity. Church, take hope in that. And if you are not a believer in here today, and for you suffering is just suffering and there is no hope, I would encourage you, there is hope in Christ Jesus. Put your faith in him. Let's pray.